This is The Big Question, where we do our best to answer questions from young disciples at Grace Presbyterian Church and to be at peace with the mysteries that we can't explain. I'm Pastor Mark, your host, and in this episode we have questions from Lydia, Israel, Stephen, Caleb F., Joanna, and Benton. First, we'll tackle a few serious questions, then we'll look at this episode's big question, and we'll wrap things up at the end with a few fun questions. Let's start with our serious questions. Our first question comes from Lydia, who asks, Why weren't there any girl disciples? Guess what, Lydia? There were girl disciples. In fact, there were a lot of them. But I understand why you're asking the question, because we use the word disciples to mean different things. Typically, the Bible refers to all the followers of Jesus as disciples. When Jesus tells us to make disciples in Matthew 28, that's how he's using the word. Anyone who follows the teaching of Jesus is a disciple. And the Bible tells us that many of the people who followed Jesus were women. But we sometimes use the word disciple as a synonym for apostle. You might hear someone refer to the 12 disciples when what they mean is the 12 apostles. Now, part of the reason that all 12 of the apostles were men has to do with the correspondence between the 12 apostles and the 12 sons of Jacob, who were the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel. Just as Jacob's 12 were seen as the foundation of the physical nation of Israel, Jesus' 12 would become the foundation of God's spiritual nation, the church. When Ephesians 2 refers to the apostles of the New Testament as the foundation of the church, with Christ himself as the cornerstone, Paul is using the word apostles in this sense. There's another factor to consider too, which is that the apostolic office is comparable to the office of elder in the church. Peter, for example, referred to himself as a fellow elder along with the others in 1 Peter 5. If you look at the qualifications for that office found in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, in both cases it says that the elder must be the husband of one wife. And now Israel asks, how old is God? And what do angels do in heaven? Israel, God is eternal and infinite without beginning or end. In fact, God created time, which means that he's not bound by it. That's why the author of Hebrews describes Jesus as the same yesterday, today, and forever. So there really isn't a good way to answer the question, how old is God? Because he had no beginning, no start date. We can't say God has existed for this many years, Because that implies that there was a time he didn't exist, and there wasn't. We can say that because he has been since before the beginning, he is older than everything. But honestly, I don't even like to say that because what we mean when we say someone is getting older doesn't happen with God. He doesn't learn. He doesn't gain knowledge. He doesn't mature or any of that. He has always been. And he has always been everything that he is. As far as the angels go, the Bible describes them fulfilling their most important task, which is glorifying God. 
Angels are represented as surrounding his throne, singing praise to him. The Bible also describes angels being sent by God to fulfill tasks. The word angel or angelos actually means literally messenger. And interestingly, apostolos has a similar meaning, one who is sent. Now it's time for the big question. Our big question this week comes from Stephen, and along the way we'll also answer a question from Caleb F. So let's give them both a round of applause. First, Stephen asks, why did they not keep Jesus on the cross? And why did they put him in the grave? Stephen, during Easter, we always reflect on the crucifixion and burial of Jesus, as well as his resurrection. When you read John's Gospel, uh, which we did on Good Friday, you notice that there is some haste when it comes to getting the crucified men off the cross. Here's how John explains it. He says in chapter 19, verse 31, Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. To understand what's happening here, we need an explanation. When people were crucified, what caused their death wasn't the nails, it was the need to hold yourself up so that you could continue to breathe. As you grew weaker, you couldn't hold yourself up easily, and you basically would succumb and suffocate to death. That might take a long time, but from the point of view of the Romans, it didn't matter if it took a long time. That was okay, because crucifixion was not just a method of execution, but a method of punishment. So basically, it's death by torture. But the Jews saw things differently than the Romans did. In the Old Testament, God had commanded them not to leave the body of a hanged man up all night. In Deuteronomy chapter 21, we read this, And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. By the way, this passage from Deuteronomy 21 verses 22 and 23 is cited by Paul in Galatians 3.13 to explain that on the cross, Jesus bore the curse of our sin for us. Caleb F. had asked, If Jesus is the Son of God, how is he a curse for us? And this is the reason. Deuteronomy says everyone who is hanged on a tree is cursed. And Jesus, when he was crucified, which is basically being hung on a tree, carried the curse for all our sin. So he became accursed so that we wouldn't have to bear that curse. Okay, so the Jewish authorities want to get the bodies off the cross and into the grave before nightfall. In fact, they want them down quicker than that because it's the day of preparation. They want to get home and start preparing for the Passover as early as possible. So what they do is actually very cruel. To make sure the men on the cross die quickly, they send soldiers to break their legs 
This way, they won't be able to use their legs to push themselves up on the cross and, and breathe, and they'll suffocate more quickly. And then the bodies can be taken down, and everyone can get busy with the preparation. But Jesus, at this point, is already dead, so his bones are not broken, which fulfills a prophecy which John cites. Instead, there's a rush now to get the bodies into the grave because, again, they want the bodies buried so that there can be no question of uncleanness because Deuteronomy says, don't leave them up all night, bury them. In the Levitical system, by the way, contact with the dead could render you ritually unclean. And and if you were unclean, you wouldn't be able to participate in the holy day. One of the ironies of John's gospel is the way that he keeps recording all of these examples of people who are perpetrating the great injustice of executing Jesus, but at the same time are taking pains to observe the little rituals of the law. I mean, Jesus is dying to atone for sin while they're keeping the law in small ways, but breaking it in major ones. It's the ultimate hypocrisy. And it's tempting for us, as we read, to judge those hypocrites until you remember that the sin that Jesus went to the cross for was our sin. We cannot blame his death on anyone but ourselves. Out of his great love for us, Jesus died for us, and every little detail of his death went exactly according to God's plan, which he had already hinted at in the prophets. So, as you reflect on your own sin, you should be sorry for it and turn away from it. But first and foremost, you should be grateful to Jesus for saving you from it. And now, before we close, let's look at a few fun questions. First, Joanna asks, what is your favorite thing to do outside in the summer? Joanna, I'm always excited when the weather starts to change and we can go back outside. There's a certain point every spring where I make up my mind to put the lawn furniture back outside. We haven't got there yet this year, but we're really close. In my backyard, I have a pergola, which is a little wooden structure that you can sit underneath. And I have a table and some chairs. And my favorite thing to do in the summer weather is to sit outside to work and to read. There's nothing better than doing your everyday tasks under the warm sun with a gentle breeze blowing through the vines and rustling the pages of your book. That's what I'm looking forward to most as the weather warms up. And finally, Benton asks, what was your dream house growing up? This probably won't surprise you, Benton, but my dream house would have been a castle. I had lots of books about castles, how they were built, how they were decorated, how to defend them. And I used to imagine building myself a castle someday. Now, a few years ago, I actually visited a castle in Colorado that a guy had built for himself. He had the same dream as a kid, and instead of abandoning it like most people, he constructed a giant castle with a metal dragon over the door. It's not very practical, but it's pretty cool. When I was a teenager, though, my dream changed a little bit. I saw a movie where a couple of guys uh, discovered a government bomb shelter underground. It was this luxury complex that had been made for the leaders of the country in case of nuclear war, but then it was abandoned and forgotten about. And after that, I always thought it would be cool to live in a luxury underground bomb shelter. In fact, I still think that would be cool. Though living underground, I would miss getting to sit in the sun and read a book.
Well, that's all for now. Thanks for listening to The Big Question. Remember, if we're going to find the answers, then we have to ask the questions. So never be afraid to ask and never be satisfied with easy answers. The truth will stand up to scrutiny. So until next time, keep asking The Big Questions. Mm-hmm.